This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. News, weather, traffic, money, politics, big interviews, and bold opinions. It's what's happening right now. This is Mornings with Simi. Billions of dollars in new spending over three years, major steps towards better child care access. Those are the major takeaways, I'd say, from the federal budget that was brought down uh, yesterday. While the focus, though, is on pandemic recovery, the opposition is saying the targets aren't clear enough. Now, later this morning, we'll be talking to Jagmeet Singh, who's the federal NDP leader, about his take and his party's take on the budget. First, though, let's find out more about what was in it with the help of Global National reporter Mike LeCouture, who joins us this morning. Good morning, Mike. Good morning. How are you doing? I am good. Thank you. So, okay, let's talk about the major takeaways here. First up, how much, how much is the deficit at this point? Like, what are we worried about in terms of the debt? Uh, well, right now, $354 uh, billion for the last fiscal year. That's going to come down significantly in the $150 billion range uh, for the year coming up. Uh, but let's take a, a, a step back for a second. Our national debt will pass $1 trillion for the first time in our history. And I'm not going to say it like Dr. Evil would, because that would make too much uh, of a joke of it, because it is serious. It's a lot of money. Um, but, you know, it's bang for your buck. And I think that's what a lot of economists are looking at this. Are we getting value for this? Is this going to be programs that can be useful? It's one thing to shovel money out the door, but it's a completely other thing to make sure that this does the work of getting the economy back on track. So let's break it down a little bit for you. As you'd mentioned off the top, $101 billion in stimulus spending over the next three years. Um, part of that will go to extending the emergency wage program and the emergency rent subsidy program. That's going to go right until September. A new program uh, that they're starting as a result of this budget is the Canada Recovery Hiring Program. It runs from June to November. It'll provide $595 million to make it easier for businesses to hire back laid-off uh, laid workers or bring in new ones. Um, some of the other spending that we're seeing, $3 billion to improve long-term care homes. That was something that throughout this pandemic we saw uh, was obviously a, a problem. There was not enough of a focus on that uh, previous to the pandemic. $17.6 billion for so-called green recovery initiatives. Uh, there's going to be a new investment of $18 billion for Indigenous communities. Um, but again, it'll all be in the details. Where is this money exactly going to be going? What will the, be the targets of it to make sure that they, they do get value and they do get the economy roaring back as they say they want to? Right. Okay, let's talk about what wasn't in here because there'd been a lot of discussion about, oh, wealth tax and all sorts of these other things, but none of that seemed to materialize. Yeah, no wealth tax, although you will be taxed if you do buy a car that's over $100,000. 
uh, or an aircraft that's over a hundred thousand dollars. Same thing with luxury boats and 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 different kind of uh, watercraft. Uh, no universal basic income. That was something that was hotly debated and passed at the policy convention, the Liberal Policy Convention uh, last week. No pharmacare. That was something that Jagmeet Singh, I'm sure, will talk to you about when you uh, speak with him later this morning. That was something that he was hoping for in here. Something the Liberals campaigned on. Something that was in the budget speech. Uh, no hike of the GST either. Uh, a lot of economists are wondering how um, this government is going to pay for everything. A GST hike by one percentage point is widely believed to be able to raise upwards of $17 billion. So that could help you pay down that debt. Uh, and health transfers are not in there as well. Something that the provinces uh, have been looking at. I wanted to turn back to something that was in there and another big expenditure. And, and that's the um, national child care pro- uh, program. Something uh, that, you know, is one of the centerpieces of this budget. This is the first budget that is pre- presented by a finance minister who's a woman, a working mom at that. Uh, she highlighted that saying that the $30 billion over the next five years that they're going to be spending on a national child care program um, will be transformative. It will mirror Quebec's model. Um, and the goal is to have a system where the average cost um, for daycare for parents is $10 per day per child. The sticky part in all of this, Simi, though, is that it'll have to be a negotiation with the provinces because it will be a transfer, but with strings attached. Um, and they want to make sure that that money goes specifically for child care. Uh, and we're already seeing a bit of a problem with it. Uh, the uh, leader of the Bloc Québécois, Yves-François Blanchet, has already said, look, Quebec already has a great model. Why would uh, this money need to be strings attached to it when you consider uh, that you guys are copying, you guys at the federal level are copying the provincial program, just make it money that Quebec can do anything with and that'll be difficult for the uh, for the feds to try and negotiate to make sure that it is specifically for daycare. Right. And that's a big hill to climb, right? Because none of that has been negotiated. So right now it's just an announcement. Well, when you consider that, uh, you know, health transfers have been something that have been tried to be negotiated or at least discussed um, for years now, any federal provincial program um, that has to be managed, that has to be hammered out, is a discussion with, you know, the feds and 13 other leaders. So how does everybody come to an agreement and to make sure that it is, you know, 13 different uh, programs, technically, because it will be managed by the provinces, but that all meet this sort of national standard. Um, the last thing I want to do is start to reopen the issue of a carbon tax in this discussion. Right. But let's just think about that one, right? A national price on yeah. carbon. That has been uh, a difficult discussion, if I can put it mildly, with the provinces and the federal government. How is that going to go over? That's that, that's an interesting one to, yeah. that will play out over the next weeks, months, and hopefully just months, because that's where the, <laughs> the, the federal government doesn't want this to drag on for years. And it sounds also, Mike, like the one thing the provinces you know, had asked for was more money in health transfers, and that doesn't seem to be happening. Yeah, it's not in there. Um, and so that's kind of the big question mark. And that was even uh, what uh, Mr. Blanchette had said. We're in the middle of the biggest health crisis we've ever seen uh, in our generation. And there's nothing to speak of, of health transfers and making sure that we're, we're propping up uh, health care across the, the, the country. Um, and, and that, again, may be something, you know, where the negotiations will have to continue. There are separate negotiations on those health transfers, but the fact that it's not in this budget, uh, it makes some people feel very uncomfortable.
Exactly. All right. Well, Mike, thanks so much for uh, explaining it all to us this morning. Thanks for having me. Anytime. That's Mike LeCouture, Global National Reporter, breaking down the federal budget. A a lot of what had been talked about in the days leading up to the federal budget wasn't actually in there. Uh, They're focused mainly on pandemic recovery at this point, getting us essentially over that finish line, which they think they can start investing in the recovery this summer. Uh, But no more money for health transfers, which all the provinces had been saying they really wanted to see in that budget, and they did not see it, but money for childcare and and a continuing support of the wage and business subsidies until this summer. We'll be breaking down more of that with the help of NDP leader Jagmeet Singh. As Mike pointed out, no no plans for national pharmacare, no steps towards that big idea, which is something the federal NDP are very much in favor of. So we'll get his take on that coming up in our 7 o'clock hour this morning. This is Mornings with Simi. So as of this morning, the latest numbers we have is that there are 441 people in hospital with COVID-19 in this province, 138 people requiring intensive care support. Those are high numbers, enough to put a strain on our healthcare system, and certainly enough that nurses around the province are feeling it and they are talking about it. So joining us now is Christine Sorensen, president of the BC Nurses Union, to talk more about this. Christine, thank you for joining us. Oh, glad to be here. Thank you. What are you hearing from your members about the state of the system right now? Well, through the weekend, I heard from nurses who are really worried about how much more strain uh, this pro- the provincial health care system can manage. They're exhausted, they're worried for their patients, and they're asking that more is to be done uh, to manage these unacceptable and unsafe workloads. So are you saying more in terms of restrictions? Are they asking people to, to listen more? What, what do nurses need? Well, the public must do their part to dramatically slow this transmission of this virus around the province. We simply don't have enough nurses and other healthcare professionals uh, to manage uh, growing numbers of people who are being admitted to the hospital. uh, And certainly the numbers that are being admitted to our ICU are gravely concerning to the nurses. Now, when you say not enough nurses, is there a particular area where we don't have enough nurses in? Well, we've been warning for months about a shortage of nurses to deal with the growing health care needs for British Columbians. Critical care nurses in this province, those that work in the ER, the ICU, our critical care units, have been in short supply for years in B.C., uh, and so, you know, it, it's not only in an acute care area, um, but I'm also hearing from the nurses who work in community as patients are moved out into the community that they are having to defer their visits to them at their home. Uh, so they, too, are getting delayed care. So it is across the healthcare system. So you're saying essentially what is happening at the top level in intensive care units is trickling down. Yes, that, that is the other concern is that we have a lot of focus on our ICU, but this is also impacting uh, other parts of the hospital as well as through to our community care nurses and the, and the care that people are receiving at home. Uh, our nurses we know that are working in public health and are, are doing their very best to manage contact tracing and the growing numbers of people in this province who are testing positive for COVID uh, and their contacts. So we are seeing a stretch across the whole system. So given the restrictions that were announced yesterday, like what was your reaction to that? Do you think that's going to be enough to help? Well, 
yesterday's presentation really showed that the healthcare system is teetering, uh, and you know, clear communication needs to to be put in place to ensure that the public is hearing the message and and is hearing. Um, to and complying to the proper rules uh, of social distancing, um, infection control. Um, we do need to see stronger measures to reduce the spread of the virus in this province. Uh, I think this was a first step in reminding people not to travel and to stay close to home. Uh, but we really need people to stay even closer to home and really consider whether they need to go out and what is essential in this province. Now, how has the union been able to help? Like, are you having to step up and help nurses? Are you seeing more burnout, more fatigue? Our nurses are exhausted. They have been managing this pandemic for well over a year and including the um, the surgical renewal plan that the government has put in place. Uh, they have always worked uh, a large amount of overtime simply to keep the healthcare system from falling apart. Uh, and they're continuing to do so now, but they are incredibly distressed. Uh, many people are being redeployed to units that they are not familiar with. They're, they're keen to help their colleagues, but they're very worried that they do not uh, know the area or the patient population well enough to be able to provide the care that these patients really need. Uh, so yes, they're, they're very distressed. Uh, they're anxious about these growing numbers, and they are really asking not only the union, but the government uh, to to put the message out, we need to slow the spread of this virus, we need to stay home. Have you spoken to your counterparts in other provinces, like in Ontario, about what is happening there? Yes, I meet with my counterparts uh, about every two weeks to discuss what's happening across Canada. Uh, obviously, what's going on in Ontario is incredibly concerning. Uh, there they too have struggled with a shortage of nurses. Uh, they have the same number of nurses per capita. We are the lowest in the country. Uh, we have all been asking for more nurses, more investment in nursing. Uh, today's budget will be a perfect example to see if this government has heard that message and has invested in nursing so that we can meet the patient care needs, not for today, but for in the future, because we know that we need better investment in nursing in order to care for BC's uh, population. Yeah, were you disappointed then with the federal government yesterday bringing down a budget first time in two years, but there wasn't more money for health care? Uh, well, there was some investment in long-term care. I think that the federal government has acknowledged that uh, we we certainly did not care for our elders uh, who were living in long-term care. Uh, well, there was struggles there, and we certainly saw that in the first wave as well as continuing. Um, but there does need to be more investment in the health care, particularly in health human resources. We have been calling on this government and the federal government to address a health human resource plan to look to see how we can ensure we have enough nurses and other health care providers uh, now and into the future. Uh, we're still waiting. How close are we, Christine, do you think, here in BC to, to really running into problems like we're seeing in Ontario? Oh, that's hard to say. I mean, everyone is doing their very best to try to, um, you know, make sure that everyone gets the care they need. But we have patients who are um, being admitted into emergency rooms, patients who are being held in hallways, patients getting care in shower rooms and sunrooms. Uh, and then, you know, my fear is that we'll get to a place where we will have to triage those who can go to ICU. We've seen the stories from Ontario, those uh, who have the greatest uh, possibility of survival go to ICU. Um, unfortunately, 
you know, if people do not adhere to the public health guidelines, if they do not stay home, reduce their contacts, uh, this will get worse. And we need to do everything we can to stop the spread of this virus. Thank you very much for your time this morning. Thank you, Simi. This is Mornings with Simi. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. Let's talk a bit more about the federal budget now. We know that the federal liberal minority government is going to need the support of at least one other political party in order to pass that budget and potentially avoid a federal election. But a couple of key asks are missing from this budget, particularly if you are the NDP. Federal NDP pushing for things like National Pharmacare Plan or a wealth tax, and that has been discussed throughout the pandemic. So let's talk more about their reaction to the budget. Joining us now is Jagmeet Singh, the federal NDP leader and MP for Burnaby South. Thank you for joining us this morning. Hey, my pleasure. Thanks for having me. Were you disappointed with what you heard yesterday? I was. I was disappointed, really, because one of the major questions coming out of this pandemic has been, who's going to pay for this? Who's going to pay for the recovery? And the Liberals chose not to make the ultra-rich pay their fair share. And the ultra-rich are the only ones who've come out of this pandemic better off than before. Some people were able to survive. Lots of folks lost their jobs. But the ultra-rich actually increased their wealth. We know the richest Canadian billionaires, 44 of them, increased their wealth by over $62 billion during the pandemic. So, so we said we should make the ultra-rich pay their fair share. So what, what would that have looked like if there had been a tax like that? What do you classify as ultra-rich? How would that have worked? Right. We'd put forward a couple of different measures. One, we said we got to end offshore tax havens. They're right now legal. So companies make profit off of Canadians' backs, but then hide that profit in offshore tax uh, havens and in bank accounts in other countries and don't pay their fair share. We need to end that. Uh, we, we propose a number of solutions to ending that. The other one is uh, we propose a wealth tax on wealth of over on people who have fortunes of over 20 million, a tax on the amount above that uh, and something that would raise a significant amount of revenue. We also said that web giants, companies like Amazon, Netflix, Google, who make money off of Canadians, pay virtually no taxes here. They should also be paying their fair share. So there's lots of measures that we proposed. Uh, the Liberals had voted against it previously. And then again, now in the budget, didn't include any measure to really go after the fact that the ultra-rich are not paying their fair share. I know one of the other things that you've talked a lot about has been a national pharmacare plan. No mention of that yesterday either. Right. And that, to me, is one of the glaring examples of how this Liberal government is happy to say whatever it takes to get elected. They ran on that in the 2019 election, as folks will recall. They said it again in the throne speech, made their commitment, and then completely and utterly abandoned it. So when they talk about childcare now... Of course, that's something we support, something we called for. In fact, their plan is exactly what we ran on in 2015 and in 2019. But uh, I'm very cynical and I'm sad to say this because liberals have often said one thing and done the exact opposite. Uh, The liberals promised to make sure Indigenous communities had clean drinking water and set themselves a target and then completely missed that target and admitted that they missed it. So my problem with the budget is really... A lot of the things the Liberals say, they just say it to get elected, and then they don't do it. Okay, so given that you say you've got a lot of problems with the budget, then how will the NDP be voting on this budget? Well, what we said, and I'm really uh, 
firm on this is that uh, given the third wave and the record number of cases in Ontario, the number of cases increasing across the country, Canadians were asked this question whether there should be an election or not. And they said resoundingly that it would be both unsafe and unfair to Canadians to hold an election now. So I agree. And I also would add to that it would be irresponsible for a leader to trigger an election right now. But there's lots of ways for us to apply pressure on the Liberal government. And uh, we'll see if they actually follow through on these. A lot of these commitments they've made there's a time limit. They said that they would reduce the cost of childcare for people in half within a year. They said they would implement a minimum wage at the federal level within a year. Well, let's see if they actually do it. And uh, we'll be there to make sure the legislation is passed. And if they don't, well, we'll look at the future and say that, again, they've broken the promise and perhaps in the future we'll withdraw our support. But they've said they're going to do certain things. Let's see if they actually do it now. So what is that timeline then like? For At what point do you say, okay, now we have to do something. We have to withdraw our support. Like how much more rope do you give them? I think at the minimum, it's got to be when all Canadians are vaccinated. Uh, in a pandemic, until we reach that point, it would be irresponsible, I think, to go to an election until all Canadians are safe. I remember the feeling when my parents got vaccinated, they're over 70, and it just gave me that, that breath of relief, that sigh of relief, knowing that they would no longer be at risk. Uh, and, and that's what we need to see, all Canadians vaccinated, and then we can consider if there's a, an appropriate time for an election. And do you, what do you think of their plan for the pandemic recovery then for the economy? Well, what I want to see is really a focus on uh, strings attached. And what we said from the beginning is that things like the wage subsidy should never go to a company that pays out dividends or that has any sort of uh, increased pay to their executives. So they've included that in now uh, for the extending extension of some of the programs. I want to see additional infrastructure and uh, spending in general be focused on how we create jobs and how we have strict strings attached that tie any funding or any supports with job guarantees. It has to be tied to jobs. And if it's not, then uh, those supports might end up doing what the Conservatives did back in 2007, 2008, where they gave money to companies who took the money and then ended up closing their factories in Canada and shut down and opened up somewhere else. And that's not appropriate. Is there frustration right now for you in this role for the party, uh, given that, as you said, you know, you know Canadians don't want an election, and yet at the same time, you feel like, hey, this is a minority government. We deserve to have our say. Well, we, we've been able to do that, and, and I'm, I'm really honoured that we were able, as, as the New Democratic Party federally, to fight and get a lot of wins for people. When the Liberals started the wage subsidy, they started it at 10%. That was their offer. 10% of someone's salary was not enough to keep jobs. We were able to fight and did a number of things, including bringing together kind of unlikely partners. We brought together the president of the Canadian Federation of Independent Businesses with the president of Unifor, myself. We wrote a letter saying it's got to be at least 75%. We fought hard and were able to increase it so that 75% of people's salaries were covered. And that kept a lot of people employed. Millions of jobs were saved. We were able to double serve so that people were able to pay their bills and stay in their homes. We were able to get help directly at the students. We were able to bring in uh, paid sick leave uh, that uh, we need to improve at the federal level. Of course, it's got problems, but the, it's the first new social safety net in a generation. All these things we achieved in the minority uh, and use our position to do so. What is your frustration, though, in dealing with this particular government in this situation? What we see just a, a kind of a pattern of behavior is that they've they've sided with the, the ultra-rich on a number of occasions. We brought in a motion or a bill that would actually move us ahead on getting universal pharmacare, and they voted against it. The only ones that benefit from voting against universal pharmacare are big pharma companies. We brought in a motion to say we need to get rid of 
uh, profit out of long-term care, specifically Rivera, which is owned by a federal agency, fully within the federal jurisdiction. They voted against that, against siding with profit in long-term care homes, not with the residents that need support. And we brought in a motion saying we need to tax the ultra-rich and close tax loopholes and make sure the web giants pay their fair share. And on that, they voted against it. So again, they've shown on a number of a number of occasions that they've sided with the ultra-rich, the large telecoms, big uh, for-profit long-term care homes, and big pharma. And that, to me, is the wrong thing to do. We need a government that actually stands up for people, not for the ultra-rich. Right. But regardless of how you feel, it sounds like from what you've said there, the budget's still going to pass because you're going, the party's going to support them. Well, what I've said is that it would be irresponsible of a leader to plunge the country into an election. And I have no qualms about being very firm on that. Absolutely. I will not be triggering an election. I'll be fighting to get more help to people. And I will not create a scenario which Canadians have said would be unsafe and unfair for them. So not at all. I'm not going to do that. But I'm absolutely going to continue to fight to get people the help they need. All right. Well, listen, thank you very much for your time this morning. Of course. My pleasure. That's Jagmeet Singh, federal NDP leader and MP for Burnaby South, talking about the federal budget. They don't like it. They're not happy with a lot of what they heard in there, but they're not going to use the budget to bring forth a federal election. They're not going to bring down the minority liberal government over it. This is Mornings with Simi. Well, service should be back to normal today for Rogers customers across the country after a very stressful day yesterday. Problems with a software update apparently caused the huge service disruptions that affected so many areas. I mean, including our show, too. Hard to interview guests when you can't reach them on their phone, right? So this caused many people on social media to voice their displeasure to the telecommunications giant And of course, once again, brings up that question of more competition in the telecommunications industry. Well, to talk more about all of the issues and the problems that this raised, uh, we're joined now by Brett Carraway, who's an Associate Professor, Assistant Director at Digital Enterprise Management School at the University of Toronto. Brett, thanks for being here. My pleasure. Now, you have a Rogers phone yourself, so you said good luck getting a hold of me this morning. Oh, my goodness. And I had everything to do yesterday. I was going to make an adjustment to one of my online accounts, and then it needed two-step authentication. I was going to purchase something, and I tried to do it over chat, and it was so frustrating. I just couldn't do it. I just wanted to make a phone call and talk to a customer service representative. So I got absolutely nothing done yesterday. My dogs were thrilled, but I didn't (laughs) get anything accomplished. Right. Were you surprised by how extensive this was? Yes, I was. And um, I've been, as I've been telling people, I've been trying to get my head around all the different types of things that would have been impacted by this sort of service outage. Um, so for smartphones, everybody's you know using it for internet browsing. People are using it for email. They're using it for online social networking. We're using it for banking and transactions. We're using it for news. Uh, you know, it was just, it impacted so many different aspects of our lives as just consumers. But of course, businesses were probably uh, equally freaked out by what was going on. Right. It's a valuable um, lesson, though, too, isn't it, Brett? Like, like just the idea that like so much of what we do is dependent on having a service like this. Yes, and it, that would be true in normal times. But of course, we're living in COVID times. And so all of us are being told, you know, I'm here under lockdown in Toronto so we're we're basically really relying on these mobile technologies. We're all working remotely, 
And sometimes that's Wi-Fi, but in a lot of situations, we need voice, we need short messaging services, um, you know, and so I feel like the, the sensitivity to this kind of outage is particularly acute right now because of other events going on in the world. Right. But when you look at what's happening in Canada with this idea that we're going to be seeing a, a merger of telecommunications companies, what do you think we can learn from this? Um, I mean, there's a lot of concern around that Shaw-Rogers um, proposal, mainly because of the lack of competition and relatively high prices. I say relatively high prices because the, the major carriers um, can say, you know, well, the, the price for data um, per unit has been going down in Canada. But, it, you know, if you stop for a second and then actually compare relative to what's happening in places like the EU um, OECD countries, we're not seeing the type of price reductions that other markets are getting in the world. So, and of course, the culprit here, even according to the CRTC, is that we have uh, essentially a three-way monopoly between Rogers, TELUS, and Bell. And so it does give one pause, you know, and it makes you start to wonder, what could we do to have a more robust, robustly competitive marketplace here? Yeah, what could we do? <laughs> That's a great, great question. Uh, you know, we could we could do things to sort of support the the so-called mobile virtual network provider, uh, or I'm sorry, mobile virtual network operators. Um, we could potentially invest more in infrastructure deployment and and start to question why we have a a, a mobile communications infrastructure that relies on sort of agreements across these top three companies and instead start to think about, you know, build out and, and have more competition uh, or maybe even considering, I know this is somewhat controversial, but even opening up the market to competition from some U S firms, there's a number of different things you could do. So what do you think the, this exposed in our whole industry, does it, does it really expose like a, a dependence on these big companies? Yeah. So if you look at telecommunications in Canada, uh, the contribution is somewhere on the order of like $75 billion contributed to Can uh, Canada's GDP. $25 billion of that probably is like directly just the telecommunications sector. But the other $50 billion contribution to GDP is all the value added that happens from uh, all of the other sectors that rely on the provision of telecommunication services in the operations of their day-to-day, -day, uh, I'm sorry, you know, cont contributing to their day-to-day -day operations. And so, yeah, this has so many potential impacts here. We're all working mobile, so it, it really impacts our uh, a firm's ability to make decisions. Um, it impacts sales, online commerce. I mean, annually, that's like somewhere between one to $2 billion a year in Canada. Uh, it impacts employees and their ability to collaborate with themselves. It impacts customer service. It impacts marketing. It impacts um, even things that aren't necessarily business-related, like if you wanted to set up a vaccine appointment to go get inoculated against COVID-19. So there's, there's public safety concerns around this. And I'm not suggesting that we all uh, move back to feudalism and go live off of the land and reject <laughs> technology, but it, it does sort of, you know, make you stop and ponder just how reliant we are in a complex society on these telecommunications infrastructures. That's so true. What did you think of the company response, like how they dealt with it? 
Well, I mean, I don't, it's hard for me to say because I don't understand the, how severe the technical problem was. I know it's a, it's a software update, but I don't, I don't want to step outside of my lane here and, and start talking as if I was a software engineer. I, I only assume that they were trying to fix things as quickly as, as they possibly could. The market share among the top three is relatively stable. There's very little turnover. It's like 1% to 2% turnover. So people aren't you know, switching service providers very much in Canada. But with a major service outage like this, I would imagine one of the things that kept Rogers up last night was how many customers are we going to lose? Who's going to switch you know, to, to Bell or Telus as a result of all of this? So I think they had an incentive to fix the problem that's as quickly as they possibly could. And who knows, maybe I'll get on the phone later and call Rogers and see if I can't squeeze them for a better deal on my data today. <laughs> I think I don't think you would be alone in actually doing that, right? <laughs> uh, and I'm sure lots yeah. of apologies all around there. So what can we learn from this going forward, Brett? I mean, I, I think the main thing that we need to keep thinking about here is the overall level of competition um, in the com- Canadian telecommunications sector. And whenever the CRTC is you know, petitioning, petitioning for comment, um, you know, the public needs to be involved in that because this sort of public infrastructure is every, every bit as important as you know, your, your basic utilities from electricity to wastewater management. Um, and this sort of service outage, I think, really highlights that for everybody in a way that you don't realize until you don't have access to it. That is so true. Brett, thanks so much for your time this morning. My pleasure. We appreciate that. Brett Carraway is an Associate Professor and Assistant Director at the Digital Enterprise Management School at the University of Toronto. Talking about the economic impact of that Rogers outage yesterday, it wasn't just like, oh, you can't make a phone call or you can't text people. As he pointed out, it's everything, right? Not booking a vaccine appointment. It is not being able to buy something. So businesses dramatically impacted. It had a huge economic impact right across the country and certainly a lot of frustration for people out there. It affected just about every industry you can think of, actually. So yeah, pretty serious situation. I can't remember the last time we saw something kind of happen so dramatically, so big and all blamed on a software update for a piece of equipment that was apparently so critical that it caused all of these problems. So I still think there's a lot of questions there that need to be answered about making sure something like that does not happen again. Canada may be known for its landscapes and friendly people, but beneath the surface lies a darker side of crime, history, and the paranormal. Since 2017, the award-winning Dark Poutine podcast has explored the shadowy corners of the Great White North and beyond, delivering chilling tales from a uniquely Canadian perspective. Hosted by Mike Brown and Matthew Stockton with over 300 episodes and fresh releases every Monday, Dark Poutine is your weekly ticket to the creepier side of Canada. Listen to Dark Poutine on Apple, Spotify, Amazon Music, or wherever you get your podcasts.